Well, good morning. Um, we'll be looking at the middle part of the book of Romans uh, today, so it's good to have that uh, text printed for you there in your worship bulletin, but it's even better to have you the copy of the text in your own hand or on your, on your device, um, because that will not be the only scripture we'll be looking at today. And if for some unusual reason you don't have a copy of your Bible with you this morning, please take those in front of you in the pew there. That's exactly what they're there for, so that we might look at God's Word together. Little theologians, let me ask you uh, this morning to draw something that represents union, things that come together to form one thing, many parts that are connected into a unit, many parts that come together to make up one piece. You may want to draw a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, many pieces coming together to form one picture. Or you may want to draw a map, if you can, of the United States of our country that's composed of many states, one country. Today is the 4th of July, and it's not just a date for celebrating the birth of our country and independence from Great Britain, but the 4th of July also remembers a determination to form one single nation from a collection of states or colonies. Uh, this holiday recalls a commitment that 13 states would become one nation, e pluribus unum, out of many one is the motto of the United States of America. So that's our theme this morning. If you can draw some of those things, little, little theologians, uh, that might be helpful as we go along this morning. Just a little context, picking up here in the middle of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, uh, Paul has been systematically laying out in Romans this great doctrine of justification by God's grace alone, received through faith alone. And Paul is declaring what God has begun in us in justifying us uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. He himself shall complete in glory. Now the problem is that when we come, uh, when we come to the end of chapter 5, uh, Paul finishes writing that part of his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, he hears himself. He hears himself as good teachers uh, do and realizes that uh, two crucial issues have been raised, and he's got to answer those concerns before he can go on. So take your Bibles, please, and and uh, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul knows that when he says where, where sin abounded or where sin increased, grace abounded much more, somebody is going to either be critical of Paul and say, you're permitting you're enabling people to sin by telling them that you're saved only by grace. But the more we sin, the, uh, the more grace there is. So you're really encouraging them to go out and sin the more. Or there may be those that are not critical of Paul, but perhaps appreciative of Paul. They will say, this is great. This is great. This is what I've been dreaming of, you know. I can glorify God by sinning. The more sin, the more grace. And so we should go on sinning creatively, energetically, and with our imagination. So these are the things that Paul will take up uh, as we read here uh, in Romans chapter 6. So hear the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died again, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let us, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. May the Lord help us. May the Lord help us to understand this portion of his word. Again, this is the 4th of July when we celebrate the 245th uh, anniversary of the birth of our nation, of our nation. But again, uh, as perhaps we are troubled in these days by our national proclivity to turn our liberty into license, to use power for personal and private gain, 
to use our national affluence simply to satisfy our desires rather than to see God's blessing upon us as a nation as a call to serve for His honor and glory in a hurting and needy world. And the Church of Christ with all of our freedom and means and money often we do not see it as a tremendous base for missions and ministry through the world. So in spite of some of these discouragements at times, over those realities, I don't think there's one here this morning. I don't think there's one who doesn't thank God or shouldn't thank God daily that we're Americans. And we wish for all the nations of the earth the kinds of liberties and freedom and opportunities that we enjoy. And yet, if we are biblically literate, we hear a voice in the background of our thanksgiving for all of those liberties we have as a nation saying, here we have no continuing city. As Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 4 that we are Abraham's children through faith and we're told that Abraham pleased God because he did not set his eyes on this earthly city, on this earthly place, but lifted up his eyes and set them upon that city whose foundation and builder and maker is God. So how are you and I to celebrate our liberties and yet acknowledge the crown rights and the claims of King Jesus on our lives? How do you and I know the real meaning of a celebration that should be much greater than any national celebration, any display of fireworks, any euphoria over the birth of a land. And the thing that is commemorated in the meal that we, were, we will partake in is that in Christ's death, He put to death death's penalty and power over you and me. He has delivered us. He has freed us from something much worse than any political tyranny. He has set us free from sin, and He has set us free from death. And He wants you and me to radiate that liberating joy because of what's God, what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That's the theme of what Paul is talking about. He's saying, in essence, how can people who've been liberated, how can people live as though they're still shackled and enslaved? How can people who have been set free live as though they're still in bondage? He lays out his argument in the following way. In, in chapter 5, Paul 
speaks of this solidarity that we have with Adam. In Adam we sin. We inherit a sinful nature. And then he speaks of the redeemed who are one in Christ, united to him. He speaks of the power of sin and the superabounding greater power of grace to break sin's hold on us and place us in this glorious solidarity with Jesus, united to him inviolably forever, united, connected to Jesus. And this is what Paul continues to talk about here in chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Here Paul asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer he gives, by no means. Paul is saying as, as emphatically as he possibly can, absolutely no way. Don't even go there. Don't use that for one minute. No we are not to go on sinning so that grace may increase. What's his reason? The second half of verse 2. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, our first response might be is, died to sin? I don't think I got that memo. I died to sin? When did that happen? When I wasn't looking? Not only is sin all around me externally, tugging, drawing me, but when I look at my own heart, when I gaze inside internally and I see desires and inclinations that shame me, what does Paul mean? You died to sin. How did I die to sin? What does he mean by this? Paul describes it very distinctly with a, with a number of figures, and they're all wrapped up in this whole idea found in verse 5. For if we have been united with Christ, with him, in a death like his, united with Jesus, he's telling us that we or if we are God's children, we died in Christ because we are united to him in his death. The old King James puts it this way, we are planted with him in his death. It's a picture of the word used for conjoined twins. Two are planted together and growing up together, connected, joined together. We're united with Christ in this way by God's grace received through faith. But when, when did I die with Christ? 2,000 years ago, when he suffered and died on the cross? No, I don't think so. If that were true, then Paul could not say to the people who are now Christians, you two once were under the wrath and curse of God. So there was a time that even those of us for whose sin Christ died had yet not received the benefit of that. We had not yet died in Christ. So when were we united to Christ in his death? 
Paul describes it with three pictures, three figures. In verse 3, he says, we were baptized into Christ and into his death. In verse 4, he says that we were buried with Christ in his death. And in verse 6, he says that we were crucified with Christ. So when did that happen? You know, I I think uh, people often have seen this text, verse 5, as providing an argument for a certain mode of baptism, and many think that immersion is that proper mode and will uh, defend that position from this text. But when we look at this text, we see there's really not a drop of water here, because if there is, this text proves more than our Baptist friends would want it to prove. If this is a proof text for water baptism, then it teaches baptismal regeneration. Do you see that? If we are united with Christ in his death at the moment of water baptism, then that's a problem with other clear passages in the Scripture. If it's the water that unites us with Christ. As Presbyterians, we... We baptize covenant children. We believe that the water is applied as a sign of the covenant years perhaps before that child will ever be truly united to Christ in the baptism of his regenerating spirit. And Baptist churches don't believe this either, that baptism regenerates because they won't baptize anyone unless they're convinced that they have been united to Christ by profession of faith. So when are we united to Christ? In Corinthians 10, Paul uh, speaks of the people of Israel and he says they were baptized into Moses when they crossed the sea. He means they were joined with him in that. He defines that kind of baptism in Christ, uh, uh, united to Christ in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, where he says, by one spirit we were baptized into one body. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about new birth. He's talking about the work of the Spirit bringing a lost sinner, bringing someone spiritually dead into a living, vibrant, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's describing it with different pictures, the picture of baptism, the picture of burial, the picture of crucifixion, all pointing to the fact that we are united with Jesus. We are in union with him at that moment when the sovereign spirit joins us to Christ and we turn in repentance and faith and place our hope and confidence, our trust in his work on our behalf. So the great good news of this, if you're, if you're trusting Christ, you're a dead man. <laughs> You've died to sin because you died in Christ. And he says, if someone has died to sin, then sin has nothing else to do with him. It's over. And there are three implications I want us just to look at briefly before before we come to the table. If I die to sin, as the Scriptures say is true of every believer, 
What does that mean in my life? If in Christ, through faith in Christ, I've died to sin, first of all, it means that I've died to the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin in my past. Let me ask you, how many of us at times feel unworthy of coming to the table because of things that we know in our past? We feel unworthy of perhaps coming to the Lord in prayer, of lifting our head up to our Father, unworthy to, to accept uh, uh, maybe ministry opportunities because I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to speak uh, and to be seen as a spokesperson for the Lord, unworthy to do ministry for the Lord because we're fixed upon events in our past of which we are ashamed, in which we believe continue to keep us from being all that God would have us to be. And yet Paul says here, you've died in Jesus. Our local police don't still pursue an offender when he's dead. It's over. The indictment, the charge, it's discarded. It's gone. And that's how Paul describes you and me. We have died in Christ. Look at what he says in verse 10. For the death he that is Christ died, he died to sin once for all. It's over. It's canceled for everyone joined to Jesus, for everyone united to Christ. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. It's over. The penalty has been wiped away. Paul will draw this out more clearly in the first verse of chapter 7 when he says, uh, um, the lawbreaker, um, the law doesn't apply to, to someone who, is, who has died. The breaking of the law doesn't apply to someone who has died. So it's over. So if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus as the Savior of your sins, the Lord of your life, it's over. Will you trust Him, the one who has said that He has paid the price? Trust Him to be good as His Word and put away those things which may still haunt us. Stop dredging up all that stuff. Paul says, leaving the things that are behind, I press on, forgetting the past. And who had a past? Paul had a past. And you and I have a past. And he said, I reach forward to those things ahead, pressing ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's gone. I'm dead. I've died to those things. I love what Augustine once said, uh, the old church father uh, who had been quite the rebel rouser and womanizer, and he went into a town where there were some women who recognized him from the old days. And one of them familiar to him called out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine replied, but it is not I. 
It is not I, because that Augustine was dead, and the penalty was canceled, and it was over. So when you come to this table, you can only come worthily as your hope and your confidence is not in yourself, but you consider the blood that was shed and the body that was broken as God's sacrifice for your sin and your penalty has been paid. And sin has nothing else to do with you and me. It's gone. God has wiped away the dead. If Christ has said it's over, who then can possibly condemn? The second aspect of this freedom from sin is not only from the past penalty, but freedom from its present power. Now this, for most of us, is where we go, hey, wait a minute. How can you say I'm free from the present power of sin? I feel it gripping me so often. When I think about Christ's death eliminating sin's power over me, I think of June the 6th. Not June the 6th, 1955, that's my wife's birthday, but June the 6th, 1944, D-Day, when the beaches of Normandy were breached, when the Allies established a beachhead on the continent of Europe that would certainly lead to the end of the Second World War. Fighting casualties would continue for a time. But the end was coming. The end was certain. And this is what Paul is telling us about the Christian, the one who is joined to King Jesus in his victory over sin and death and the grave. God has given us the power of his abiding spirit. He has given us his word, which is a weapon that we're to draw and we're to use in battle. And if we wimp out whenever temptation comes, and to be tempted is not a sin. Our Lord was tempted in all ways such as we, yet without sin. But when we feel the force of temptation warring against us and we just fold up like cream puffs and don't use what God has given us to resist, then sure, in our lives, Sin is going to continue and advance and have sway, even though it is a defeated foe. And that's what Paul is saying. The power of sin is broken. When you and I submit to sin, we are putting our necks under the yoke of a defeated and vanquished foe. And then thirdly, our future, our future is secure because at last God will remove the presence of sin from us. I've been thinking about that a lot. Glory, heaven, 
sin and death and hell and all things will at last be cast into the lake of fire. And we will be raised with Christ. Verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul speaks of this as the hope of glory which belongs to every single believer. The day is coming for those of us who are in Christ when not only the penalty of sin will be forever removed, not only will the power of sin be utterly broken, but at last sin will no longer even be present in our experience. We shall at last be set free from this struggle and we shall be free to praise and adore and serve the Lord without destruction forever and ever. And that, that will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord our God, you have done for us what we cannot or could not or ever do for ourselves. And we would humbly claim your grace, confessing that we have let our adversary establish at times a foothold, tear down his work, rule and reign and work afresh in our hearts. Help us to give to you all that we have. And by the power of your spirit coursing through us, aid us to fix our gaze on the hope of glory. Prepare hearts now to commune with you in this meal. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.